2: On the morning that Julia got laid off, she walked out of the gym and checked her email. The
1: actual day, I I went to my gym. I come out of the gym. It's like 8.30 in the morning. I've just come out of Pilates class. I just check my phone as I do, and it's like, Stripe HR, your role at Stripe.
2: That's not a note anyone wants to get, and it was a shock.
1: There were no rumor mill. There was no, there was nothing. Like, I'm telling you, I've been in companies, you know, there usually is some sort of water quote, like, this was stealth, absolute stealth.
2: Julia, by the way, is not her real name, but that's what we're calling her today. She knows her way around tech. She's worked at a bunch of the big name companies, including Amazon and Microsoft. And she joined Stripe, the online payment processor, a little over a year ago to work on company partnerships, just before a big expansion.
1: It was the highest valued privately held company at the, you know, I think it was at that time it was like 95 billion. Um, you know, was a rocket ship.
2: Initially, COVID lockdowns and the subsequent online shopping boom propelled that rocket ship even higher. But then gravity kicked it. Stripe laid off 14% of its workforce earlier this month, including Julia. In a note to employees, the company's founders blamed inflation, rising interest rates, and their own bad business decisions. Julia's worried about her colleagues who work here on work visas. She's already started networking for her next gig. But she's also been around the block enough that she knows that, however brutal, this is what companies sometimes do.
1: So I don't really take it personally. And if you go to a startup, like, I guess this is the chance you take. And at that time, like, not everybody had jumped on the bandwagon, right? Like, as of last Thursday, it wasn't like the entire industry had decided uh, to do this.
2: But since Julia got laid off, it kind of feels like the whole industry has decided to do this. Tens of thousands of tech workers, including at some of the biggest companies in the industry, have lost their jobs in November alone. So today on the show, we're going to explore why Because maybe something fundamental is shifting, and tech shouldn't be counting on rocket ships anymore. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. It's not just Julia's experience at Stripe or Elon Musk's whatever you want to call it at Twitter. Winter holiday season is turning out to be the season of layoffs for the tech industry. The latest report, Amazon will be laying off thousands of employees in its corporate and tech divisions.
3: Well, turned out of the turmoil at Twitter, the social media giant appearing to be in disarray after as many as half of its employees were laid off under new owner Elon Musk. Facebook's parent company, Meta, announced that it's cutting more than 11,000 jobs, about 13% of total staff. Apple shares trading lower this morning after CEO Tim Cook confirmed reports of hiring slowdowns at that company. By even
2: a conservative estimate, some 40,000 tech workers have been laid off in November. And the website layoffs.fyi says more than 130,000 people have lost their tech jobs globally this year. It's been an ugly fall, in both senses of that word, for an industry that has been going gangbusters for about two decades. And I wanted to talk to reporter Timothy B. Lee, who covers tech and economics, because Tim wrote an essay titled The End of Silicon Valley's 20-Year Boom that made me sit up and pay attention.
0: So you had the... the First decade of that 20-year boom, you had companies like Google and Facebook that, in retrospect, we know they just straightforwardly were worth a lot more than people expected. And that was just because people weren't really thinking through, you know, how like everybody was going to be on the internet, you know, search ads and internet advertising was going to be a pretty profitable thing. It it was just hard for people to get their minds around how big these tech companies could be. Um, and then you had, for the second decade in the 2010s, you had a bunch of kind of follow-on um. Companies that were more focused on the physical world, your Uber's and Airbnb's and and scooter companies and stuff like that, and people were hoping that that would have the same kind of um, kind of growth potential. And the idea was, well, Google and Facebook, that's just bits, and now we're doing atoms, and atoms is much bigger than bits, and so it should be bigger. Um, and so people thought they were having this getting the same kind of valuation. But yeah, I mean, people were just thinking that these companies were going to grow up, going to blow up the way Facebook and Google did, um, and for the most part. Um, those, those kind of early ones like Uber and Airbnb did grow, but not as much as people expected. And the later ones like the scooter start- startups or WeWork, um, those did not grow at all. And in fact, kind of imploded once it became clear that that, that growth uh, potential wasn't there.
2: You can think of those later companies, Uber, Airbnb, various scooter startups, drafting off the success of the biggies like Facebook and Google, riding their coattails to get lots of venture capital and spectacular valuations
0: you had this ecosystem built up, you had these venture capital firms that just got in the habit of seeing fast growing, unprofitable companies and saying, oh, this has the potential to become a very profitable business in the future. And that was just what they did. And they had, you know, it's, they, had, they were raising money from institutional investors that were used to giving to venture capital. And so I think to some extent, it was just, kind of momentum they were just used to doing that and so they kept doing it and but the the kind of pickings became slimmer and slimmer um and the opportunities weren't as good as they used to be and it just took a few years for people to really notice um how unattractive some of those opportunities were
2: i want to talk about what was going on inside these companies in this time period and when i read your piece i was reminded of this famous internal memo at facebook that andrew bosworth known as boz wrote in 2016 and it, it it got a lot of flack for basically revealing kind of the underside of a lot of these tech companies. But there's this line that's really telling. And he says, we connect people, period. That's why all the work we do in growth is justified. And you wrote about growth and growth being the mantra in this time period. And I wonder why growth was so important, but also what ingredients are necessary inside, you know, a Facebook or a Twitter to create growth and and growth above all else. I mean, to
0: some extent, I think it was just that in 2005 or 2010, there were just a lot of people in the world that weren't on the internet yet or were not using the internet as much as they would be. And so there was just this big untapped market that had just been created and the companies that kind of get there first and become the, the dominant players um, are going to grow a lot and make a lot of money because they're just exploiting a new market, um, by 2012 or certainly by 2015 or 2020, that wasn't so true anymore, at least in the developed world. Like pretty much everybody's on the internet, pretty much everybody's using Google, using Facebook. And so it just became much harder to find, um, either new customers or new things for people to do on the internet. Um, and so, uh, If you wanted to create a new tech company, you had to kind of steal market share from a different tech company, as opposed to being a a first mover in some like big new industry that didn't exist before.
2: So you've got to still value growth above all else, just find it somewhere different?
0: If you run an electric utility or a hospital or something, like you'll grow, but you grow about the same rate as the overall economy because, you know, most people already have most services. And so you're, you're trying to come from other companies. So I think tech is just transitioning into a period where it's just kind of a normal company where... It's competing with other big companies. And um, yeah, there's just not new customers and new services to, um, to roll out as quickly as there was 10 or 20 years ago.
2: Part of what makes these layoffs so striking, beyond the sheer numbers, is that tech has weathered a lot of storms that really hurt other industries, It came through the financial crisis intact, and even thrived during the first two years of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think there were two things that happened. One is, obviously, there was a shift to remote work which um, then created some opportunities and just caused people to be on their computer more. So I think that did probably extend the growth. I and mean, Facebook for... hired
2: like 30,000 people.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, but then the second thing that happened is the Fed cut interest rates and Congress did a bunch of stimulus. And so you also injected all this money into the economy that caused the valuations of all the companies to shoot up a lot. And so I think that allowed even that allowed the um, kind of interest in investment to accelerate even beyond what the actual growth that was happening because people hmm. saw their investments becoming more profitable um and so you saw i mean the most extreme example of this was the meme stops the game stops and you know crypto and stuff um there was nothing fundamental happening to those businesses that made you think that they were like this huge opportunity it was just there was so much money sloshing around that they had to go somewhere and They went various places, but those places then felt like they were kind of winning at the investing game as opposed to just kind of being um, part of this like dusher of money that was coming out of of Congress and of the Fed.
2: When do you think things started to turn?
0: I mean, I I think the uh, the, the Fed raising interest rates in early 2022 was a big factor um, because that kind of turned all that stuff I just talked about in reverse, where now there was less money sloshing around the economy. And so investors had to be a little bit more choosy. And so valuations started to fall. Um, and then once valuations started to fall, then tech companies start thinking, well, you know, uh, just this business model of like growing now and worrying about profitability later, that doesn't make a sense uh, much sense anymore if if you can't like raise more money to kind of help pay for for costs in the meantime. And so, um, yeah, I would say early 2022 is really when this started to change.
2: Because I guess what I'm trying to tease out here is like, is this the, the leadership of these companies looking at kind of macroeconomic trends and saying, okay, well, the Fed's tightening. And even though the labor market's still good, there's like a little weaker data. Maybe we should worry about that. Or is there something specific to, to tech and like where these companies are in their life cycle?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. So absolutely, I think I think that we were going to have a kind of deceleration of their hiring and their kind of focus on growth um, regardless. But the the kind of switch from stimulus-driven growth to tightening kind of a, kind of sharpened that deceleration where rather than like gradually um you know slowing hiring, they actually had to do some layoffs. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's a big thing to change. And I think one of the things that happens is that when you're a fast-growing company, there's a lot of value in having a deep bench because, um, you know, if some new market opportunity comes up, you want to be able to throw a bunch of people at it Hmm. and kind of grab it before one of your competitors do. And so I think a lot of these companies got used to um, having a lot of extra people around for those kind of things. And particularly, you look at companies like uh, Lyft or like Twitter— you know, Lyft was really trying to become the next Uber. Twitter was trying to become the next Facebook. And so I think they were a little bit overstaffed because their, their, like, aspiration was we were going to be like those bigger guys. And so we want to kind of have all the infrastructure and the talent that they do. And as long as they were growing pretty fast, that was an okay strategy because it helped them grow a little faster.
2: I think one of the things that's striking is on the way up, doing this was relatively cheap because software doesn't have a lot of overhead.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you think about the the probably the most famous example of this when Facebook acquired Instagram. Um, they had, I think, it was thirteen people, um, and uh, and they had something like forty million users at that point. And people thought it was crazy that Facebook was buying uh, a thirteen person company for a billion dollars. Um, but obviously, we we now know like Instagram's a huge thing. We don't know exactly what it'd be worth if it was independent, but it'd be a lot more than a uh, billion dollars. I think the early promise of Um, software companies was one programmer could write a line of code that every the millions or billions of users could use and because of that it should be um, very profitable because uh, your your marginal cost is very low Um, and and therefore you can have a very large scale and make a lot of money and I think one of the big questions about the industry now is like kind of what happened to that because um, it's definitely not the case now that look at a company like Twitter they they bring in um billions of dollars and seem to really struggle to make a profit. and um, and I haven't, I've, I've talked to a bunch of engineers and heard different answers in terms of, is is it that when you reach it for a certain scale, it stops being cost effective? Which that, that doesn't really make sense to me. Um, or there's, I mean, there are some other costs. Selling ads is expensive. Moderation is expensive. So it, it's hard to say exactly what's going on there. But um, I think you are going to see tech companies uh, trying to get back to that to some extent to figure out, do we really need to have all these people? Are there more things we can automate or side projects we don't need anymore so that we can get back to this idea that um, that this should be a very cost effective industry?
2: just because people are expensive and they come with my health insurance and kind of all the associated costs that a person brings to the table.
0: Just if you have more programmers, you gotta, you gotta pay their salary every, every year. And, um, you know, that's great if, if they're like doing work that needs to happen. Um, but it should be possible. Um, this should be like a manufacturing tech industry where you get more and more productive over time as you get more efficient, as you figure out how to do more with less. Um, and that's how the economy overall grows as we figure out how to, to produce more more stuff with fewer people.
2: There was also this weird thing happening where some of these companies, and I'm thinking of, of Lyft and Uber, were hugely subsidizing their own services. That's right.
0: Uber and Lyft in particular, um, they've really... Uh, I mean, you've probably, if you've used either of those services as a customer um, in 2015, um, it was not only much cheaper, but also much lower weight. Uh, I'm doing a reporting project now where I drove for Lyft for a week. Um, and I also did this in 2014. So in 2014, as a driver, I had to wait a long time to get a ride. And I didn't make very much money um, from the fares because the fares were low, but Lyft would kick in these up these huge subsidies I got more from the subsidies than I did from the fares in 2014. now it's the opposite um they're very little waiting they, they're very good at like queuing up your next passengers as soon as you drop the previous one and the prices are higher but you get no subsidies um and so I actually think like Uber and Lyft are Going to be fine in terms of they're going to be able to get to being a profitable business. I think it's just not going to be quite a bit as big of a business as they were hoping it was going to be, um, and they're going to probably have to tell, tighten their belts a little bit to, uh, you know, make a profit on the the not quite as big um, amount of revenues that that they're going to end up getting.
2: When we come back, bye bye, big tech, hello, boring IT.
3: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Part of what made investors love Silicon Valley and made Silicon Valley self-mythologizing is that everyone was always looking for that next big thing. And if it took off, there was lots of money to be made. Right now, with the more mature tech industry, it's less clear what that next thing might be. You know, thinking about social media in this moment, like I'm thinking about Facebook in particular, right? First job cuts in 18 years. At their core business, Facebook still makes money. Meta is like, I don't know, trying to do weird things where like you don't have legs or you have fake legs. Right. <laughs> and I, I just wonder like, where does it have to go as a company? What's, what's the next thing? I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is thinking about that, but it does seem from the outside that some of the flyers they took on these next step businesses aren't paying off
0: the story of tech over the last 20 years has been exactly you know you had PCs and then you had the internet and then you had smartphones and then arguably had smartwatches but like uh, you know the the CEOs of these companies are used to always looking for the next thing. And so Mark Zuckerberg is doing that. He's going towards the VR and the metaverse. Um, and so far, it's not paying off. i I think the jury is still out. I mean, it's very possible that 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 will pay off. And in the long run, this that'll be kind of the next this thing This is maybe.
2: why I'm not the CEO of meta
0: and maybe this whole conversation will turn out to be obsolete if like, every tech company is like doing their metaverse play and growth is continuing. i'm I'm skeptical of that, but that's the big question is like if the metaverse turns out to be a big thing, then the growth story can continue. and, Mark will look uh, pretty shit. But at some point, I think there's only so many like ways, types of computer interfaces. Like you can have one on your desk, one in your hand, maybe one on your face, but like, there's not gonna be like five more of those. Um, and so uh, either now or after the metaverse thing, um, there's going to be a point where there's just not a, a big next thing in like consumer tech. Google tried to do Google Glass 10 years ago, that didn't work out very well. Apple is rumored to be working on a VR thing and has been for years. Um, so like every year that goes by that that, tech companies think that's a thing and it doesn't seem to be, makes me a little more skeptical. Um, but yeah, I think if there's going to be a, a next big thing that kind of allows the growth to continue, it would be the better it. So far, it doesn't seem to be padding out.
2: When we think about these tech companies in Silicon Valley, sometimes I'd like to think about them as the supply. And then from a macroeconomic context, the demand for what they do comes from investors. And I I wonder when you look at you know, the course of let's say the last 15 years, what role both Wall Street, but also big money managers, big pension funds play in terms of what they are demanding these companies do?
0: So, you, we had in the 2010s, we had this environment of very low interest rates and very high stock valuations. And when that happens, anybody who's managing a large amount of money wants to look for places where they can um, make riskier bets and potentially get a bigger payoff.
2: Because their normal bonds are like, well, nothing.
0: Right. Yeah. You get two percent or something off your normal bonds and you'd like to get more than that. And so they got very um comfortable with uh this this pro- proposition that you take you invest in a money losing company, but it grows very fast and then eventually becomes profitable. And because it's so huge, it becomes very profitable. And um, you know, that that only works though if there is in fact a profitable business at the end of the, the process. And I think they're just running out of those options. Um, so I think it all depends on what happens in the future. I mean, if it's possible there are some some future Google's and Facebook's being founded now that we just haven't noticed yet. And if so, it'll continue. But if it, if that doesn't happen and it doesn't seem like it's happening, then I think institutional investors will start to to learn that actually like BC, maybe it's not the, the like cash cow it used to be. And, and we'll see that industry shrink.
2: How much of this do you put at, at the feet of the Federal Reserve?
0: I think it's unclear which way the causation runs. Um, I mean, the the way it's supposed to work is when you cut rates, then the economy accelerates and then you can raise rates again because the economy is growing quickly. Um, and the Fed was really trying to make that process happen in the 2010s and um, it didn't happen. And so was that was that the Fed holding rates down or was that the Fed trying to get the economy growing and failing? Um, I think you can kind of argue it either way. Um, what we have seen in the last couple of years, though, is that when Congress engages in stimulus spending, that really does work. And so one way you could look at it is that um there should have been more stimulus spending after the Great Recession, in which case we would have had a faster growing economy and higher interest rates. Um, but certainly I think the higher interest rate environment, whether you want to blame that on the Fed or on other factors, that I definitely think is was a big factor in why we got um the the kind of uh the kind of market we had in the 2010s where um where it Companies were able to raise a lot of money and subsidize services in the pursuit of growth, and now we're worry about profit. If, if interest rates had been high in 2015, it just would not have worked that way because it wouldn't have made sense.
2: You have this really interesting argument that I, I kind of want to spend some time with um, an argument that that maybe all of these layoffs might be good for for workers and for the larger economy. can you Tell me a little bit about that, because I think if you've just lost your job, you might be willing to say like, yeah, F you, Tim. I don't agree with that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would say it was good for the workers per se. I mean, so, so Silicon Valley just pays a ton of money these days. And um, certainly if you're a you know, a Google engineer that's making, or or a, a Amazon engineer that's making five hundred thousand dollars, and you're not able to find another five hundred thousand. I'm not going to say that's good for you. Um, but you know, there's there are many many jobs in the economy for programmers at banks or manufacturing companies or retailers or any any other number of businesses that just kind of do normal stuff and are not primarily in the tech business, but they have websites, they have software to manage their supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say that those kind of companies have just really struggled to get kind of top tier programmers, because those programmers can make my money at Google and Facebook. And um, the reason those companies were willing to pay so much money is because they were uh, kind of in this land grab to get big market share in this, what they expected to be a very very lucrative industry in the future, not so much because they're creating a ton of value, like right now for customers. And so um, I think it's very possible that as these tech companies slim down a little bit, some of the very talented people that used to work at those companies will go work at a bunch of other companies across the economy, um, and just make all those companies a little bit more productive because um, they're able to get better talent to make their computer systems better, their websites better, their um, you know internal software better.
2: But is going to work for I don't know some giant hospital system in the Midwest as sexy as it is to to write code for Facebook?
0: probably some of the programmers won't be that excited about it. I mean, you know, they're not, they're not particularly fun jobs, um, but they are really important. So like my wife's a doctor and she doesn't particularly like the the software that her hospital uses, but she would be a more effective doctor if if like, if um, their software was as like easy to use as, as Gmail or Google Maps, like that would be great for her and great for um, her patients and like everybody. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's probably not great for programmers per se. But um, I think it's probably great for the people that use the software that uh, that people outside the tech industry. like there's just a lot of software outside the tech industry that's not very good, but it's very important that people really rely on. And if that became better over the next two years, that would be, I think, good for the economy as a whole
2: and and that does seem to be where, you know, actually some of these big tech companies, are thinking about their next move, right? Whether it's Amazon Pharmacy or some of these bets that Google has been been trying to make on, say, big healthcare systems.
0: They are trying.
2: They have not been successful so far.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a very different thing because, like, um, you know... Those kind of software systems, um, to do them right, you have to know a lot about the specific industry, about the pharmaceutical industry or, you know, whatever it is. And um, I think that the big tech companies are used to kind of building their own thing from scratch and not so much doing a lot of like interacting and, and thinking about the needs of of a specific industry. I think it's great that those that the big tech te- tech companies are going into those industries, but it's not going to be as easy for them to win as those, in those industries as it is for um, them to do kind of in their home turf.
2: We've talked a bit about the allure of the next big thing, right? Everybody chasing whatever that's going to be. And I think for a while, you could probably make the argument that the next big thing was crypto. Mm -hmm. This has been a rough week for that. Do you think the FTX implosion takes the bottom out of that argument?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess, so So I've been writing about crypto um, since 2011. So, and and back in 2011, I was actually pretty bullish about it, because it did seem like it could be the kind of thing where um, it could have big, it p- could make big changes on the way that the financial industry works. And, you know, everybody's just been kind of waiting for like, what's the like consumer application of this that like normal people will use. Um, and you look at FTX, I mean, FTX had the Super Bowl ad kind of basically saying like, you're a sucker if you don't get into crypto. But if you think about what you were supposed to do with crypto, what you are supposed to do was like gamble with it and like try to become wealthy. And like, that's just like a, that's not ultimately creating any value. That's just, you're trying to like, you know, um, win by like trading against other people. And so like, there ultimately there has to be some like tangible thing That, um, you know, Amazon delivers packages to people, Apple creates like phones that are actually useful for people. There's no like thing that an ordinary consumer uses for crypto other than like gambling on it. And so for crypto to be the next big thing, I think we really do need to see like what's the tangible use case.
2: Is it time to toss out the next big thing rubric?
0: I think it might be. I mean, so one thing I've been thinking about is if you think about other industries that used to be kind of similar, so you think about the car industry in the early 20th century, um, there was a period where there were a lot of new car companies being started. Cars got better, much faster. A lot of fortunes were created. But then sometime, I don't know, around World War II, it was sort of that period ended. And it was, there was the big three or big four automakers. And, you know, it's not like those industries went away. They continue to be very big, important, profitable industries. But they just became normal industries that grew about as fast as the broader economy. And nothing that exciting happened. No huge fortunes were made. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's going to be now or 10 or 20 years from now, but at some point, tech will be the same kind of thing where the consumer internet is just an established industry like all the others, and uh, yeah, it's there's not a next big thing per se. I mean, I think in the broader economy, there'll be next things. There'll be probably there, the clean tech thing seems like it's going very quickly. Eventually, we might have, you know, self car, flying cars or self-driving cars. There's like other stuff not kind of in consumer tech, but in consumer tech, I think um, at some point that'll just be kind of a mature technology where stuff doesn't change as much as it has over the last 20 years.
2: Make tech boring again.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Tim Lee, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Timothy B. Lee is a technology and economics reporter. He writes the newsletter Full Stack Economics. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family and is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a little request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We will be off on Friday for the holiday, but back next Sunday with a new episode. So have a lovely Thanksgiving. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.